Thank you for listening to this audio recording produced by Truth Point Church in West Palm Beach. We exist to point people to the truth of the gospel. By the end, you're going to think that Nick and I coordinated. Actually, we didn't at all. So coincidentally, this is better that way than if we were going to say end up saying opposite things and I was going through my notes and deleting things. But we're not going to be talking primarily about the, uh, the election today. If we're going through a series on Hebrews and I continue on and somehow I made it about the election, I would be cheating on the word because, or it would be a remarkable act of providence. But what we're going to hear today... <laughs> What we're going to hear today does apply because it applies generally to our life uh, as Christians. If you're joining with us, we've been in a series on the book of Hebrews, and uh, we reread today in the responsive reading one of the parts that sets this up, this, this, um, this hall of heroes or a hall of faith, this reminder of people's lives of faith that we've been going through. Our responsive reading was a reminder, that's what this is coming out of, this encouragement to each other to hold fast Hold fast to who Christ is. Hold fast to our hope in Christ. And then together, encouraging each other, meeting together to live out that faith in the world that he's called us into. At the end of this, when we finally get to chapter 12, and we're going to be accelerating a little bit, or else I think if we did story by story, we'd be in chapter 11 until April. Um, And I really, it actually is April if we were to go story by story. But this was, a, this was part of a sermon to get us moving, so we're not going to do that. We're going we're gonna to move forward a little bit. As you see these stories, they are meant to encourage us. Come on, everybody. Y'all together. Let's go. Let's live out this faith. Hold fast. Set yourself aside. You don't have to worry about yourself anymore. If you're in Christ, if you've repented, know this truth. He's taken care of it. Hold fast to that. You're taken care of. It's a free gift. That's done. Hold fast to that so that we can then be set free to go and live the race that is set before each one of us. And all of those races are different. So with that context in mind, let's go into today's reading. And uh, then we'll pray and we'll, we'll break it up a little bit into, into I, th- I think, three fairly easy-to-follow categories. So let's read. Um, we're only going to be reading from he- Hebrews this morning. So if you've got it, it's in the bulletin. If you're at home, it'd be in the electronic bulletin. Um, it's also in your Bible under Hebrews 11, uh, 20 to 28. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Let's pray. 
Father, open up your word to us this morning. Lord, I pray that you'd be with me and the words that I speak, that I'd be speaking your words in truth and be faithful to what you've given to us as you've taught us, uh, taught all of your people, that you've given us this word that comes to us from above, that we wouldn't be left wandering around seeking out truth on our own and failing as we so often do. But Lord, I pray that where I fail, you'll open up everyone here's ears, that they would hear the truth, that they would hear your message, that they'd be encouraged. They'd be encouraged in what you've done for them, that they would be full of the certainty that Christ is enough and that we would be encouraged, even as your author was trying to encourage us to go as your people here on this earth and to live out that great good news, helping each other, discipling each other, taking care of the poor, preaching the good news so that those who don't know you will hear you and enter into your kingdom, and that we would be encouraged all together in the glorious hope, the certainty that your kingdom come. In your name we pray. Amen. So um, I want you to think back. I, I, I've shared, I think, a few times here. I taught high school for a while. I taught middle school for a little while. I try not to think about that, but I taught high school. And if you're a middle school student, with all due respect, when you get to be 25, you won't like yourself either in middle school. <laughs> And you may not right now, so I, I really feel like we're on firm ground here. Middle school's tough. It's middle tough. But high school was really interesting because, for me at least, there was this really, really sharp change from eighth grade to ninth grade. And it's like all of a sudden, like those same kids were pretty tolerable. And then by 10th grade, I really enjoyed them. And as juniors, they were fantastic. And seniors were great for four months. Now, you may remember the word senioritis if you're not anymore in high school, alas. Um, like me, long past and vaguely remembering, I experienced senioritis on both sides. Senioritis was that name that we gave to this phenomenon that you're aiming towards graduation and you start to mature, you know, like from eighth grade when you can barely think about consequences more than four seconds out from the action that you're taking to ninth grade, to 10th grade, and you've got this kind of eyes on a couple things, graduation and college. And for a lot of the kids, senioritis reflected especially those kids that had their minds set on college. And they dragged themselves along, and they were doing well, and it's not like everybody was like, woohoo, school's fantastic, but they knew, I've got to work, I've got to work, I've got to work, and it revealed itself. Everybody that was working for graduation in college shut off in January because you were in. Like the credits were there. It became just don't fail. You've got your letters. Maybe it's March that you've got your letters, but the applications are out there. They've got your transcripts. The future didn't motivate you anymore. Whew. It was gone. But actually, one of the things that it illustrates is we are motivated by the future. Now, some of you guys, it may be different things. Maybe you're motivated. I've got a friend that's in government service, and he just needs his 20 years. And he's dragging himself through the next five years for his pension. And it's motivating. The future's motivating him, not in a way that's super, super spiritual, but it's motivating him and keeping him moving. The future can drag us to it. It can make us move. It can make us act. And that kind, of, that kind of notion of being motivated by something that's not right there in front of us is a big part of what we're going to hear in most of this message. There'll be a little bit other parts. We'll talk about past, present, and future here. But it's also going to be part of what the author of Hebrews is trying to do overall, not only setting us that foundation back here in the past of saying Christ died and took care of your sins, 
And if you set your faith on him, that's firmly established. But also setting out in front of us the reward so that we'll be motivated to act. And unlike graduation, which comes and goes, that motivation is out there at the end of this life. So as long as we're in this life, we should be motivated by that end. No senioritis here in the church. In fact, that's almost what's happening in Hebrews, right? He's talking to people that he said, you guys were doing so well. What happened? Y'all got senioritis. Come on, get moving. Graduation didn't happen. You're not into college. It's out there. Keep going. But as we look at this today, I'm going to divide the different stories out. Now, remember, the author of Hebrews is telling us these stories in sequence as they would be in the Old Testament. And really, you're going to hear why each one of these stories is part of a massive story. Part of the reason that I'm not going back and reading in the Old Testament this week is because we would have chapters and chapters and chapters on every one of these people, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. But we're going to be grouping these a little bit by three different ideas, and it's past, present, and future. So that part's pretty straightforward. And what it's going to be is, is the action that's being reflected in here, one that comes out of the past or one that's about the present reality or one that's about the future. And we can even make it a little better. It's an action that we take in the church that rests on God's past promises or an action that we take that is reflective of the fact that right now, as we heard earlier, right now we are first citizens in God's kingdom. Or is it action that we take that reflects we know that the real reward is in our future? So as we, as we break it up into those categories, let's start on the ones that are acting on past promises. And this is going to be the first three, but also verse 28. So let me read these to you again, and it's four different individual actions. And let's hear how these, these reflect people of God acting out of past promises. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, he, this is refer referencing Moses, remember, sorry, I, I, I apologize, skipping down to 28. By faith, he, Moses, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. So each one of these stories reflects acting out of past promises. Now, the first three, let's concentrate on those for a minute. If you go back and read in Genesis, <clears throat> in Genesis there's this really interesting way that blessings play out. That, that blessings play out, the, the father will give his blessing to his son. In fact, with Jacob and Esau, Jacob tricks his dad. His mom's in on it, tricks his dad into getting the blessing that belongs to Esau. The fact that it comes forward here as an act of faith, like so many of them, is interesting because mixed in with God's work is some real scoundrels and bad behavior. But the blessing, as Isaac gives the blessing... As Isaac gives the blessing, he's not doing it out of his own authority, even though he gives the blessing. He's giving it out of the authority of God has promised through my children, I'll make a multitude, right? We heard about those promises with Abraham. The same thing as we get Jacob blessing the sons of Joseph. This is after, if you remember, Joseph is the brother who 
his dad, he's the favorite. His dad treats him like an obvious favorite. His brothers don't like him. His brothers sell him off into slavery. He gets sent off to Egypt. He lives, he seems to become a more faithful guy when he gets to Egypt, but his life is terrible for years and years. But finally, he gets elevated to this position of power. He brings his father and his brother into Egypt. He's protecting them there. And now at the end of Jacob's life, Jacob blesses the sons of Joseph because he's speaking out of God's promises. Out of my children will be a multitude. And then finally, Joseph, now they're in Egypt. And remember, the people in Egypt, we're going to get to this in Moses, are about to become slaves. They're not there yet. Joseph still has a position of power and privilege. And Scripture teaches us that over time, people forget that the Israelites were favored people in Egypt. But Joseph says, I know it won't be here. Take my bones to the promised land. I know we're going to get taken out of here. Why? Did he have some special privilege to be able to speak reality? No, he's speaking out of God's past promises. I am sure because God said that's the promised land and it's not here that we'll be going there. Please take my bones with you because God will take us out of here because he promised. And then finally, in Moses, we have that same thing happening in verse 28. By faith, he, Moses, kept the Passover. And if you remember, this was the last of the plagues in Egypt. And God said, the firstborn in all families will die. Unless you have, unless you have appropriately, properly celebrated the Passover. And sprinkled the blood of the lamb, the the sacrificial lamb, the replacement lamb, the lamb who takes death from you. And so by faith, he kept the Passover. The people of Israel kept the Passover. And the destroyer of the firstborn passed over. So resting on God's promise, if you do this, that is sure. And pay close attention to this one. If you put your trust in the replacement lamb, death will pass you over. So that's the first category that's coming out here of of these texts where it shows people acting by faith, relying on God's promises, speaking or doing what they couldn't know on their own. Now, the second category, the second grouping that I want you to see are the actions we said in present. So past, present citizenship, belonging to God's kingdom. More first, prior to, above and beyond, belonging to any earthly kingdom. And here I want you to look at verse 23 and verse 27. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. In these two verses, and actually particularly the first one, if you were to find papers, like Christian papers or Christian articles on civil disobedience, this would be one of the main texts that come out. If you remember, so now we're further down past Joseph. The Israelites have gotten to be so uh, populous and so powerful that that in Egypt, there was a law that was passed that all of the male Hebrew babies had to be killed. 
And we get a couple of, we get one sort of across the board. The Hebrew midwives said, we're not going to do that. And so they basically cheated and lied and said, oh, we just keep missing. And I'm sorry, these ladies just keep having their babies by themselves because they're so strong. But we get a very specific story of that here with Moses' parents. The law said, kill your baby. And they said, I will not. The child of promise, Moses, was protected from the evil law by parents who recognized that I'm not a citizen first of Egypt. I'm a citizen first of God's country, of God's kingdom. And I can't obey a law that forces me to do what is wrong. Now, we don't, in various times and in various places, Christians come up against this more or less. There are places in the world right now where Christians are meeting together, not because, uh, not in defiance of a pandemic order, but in defiance of long-term law that says you're never allowed to get together. And actually, it becomes very clear-cut there to say, Hebrews says, get together, so we've got to get together, so we can't not meet and open the word. They're breaking the law by not reading the Bible. Our, <laughs> They're breaking the law by reading the Bible. That word not is really important to get in the right places. Um, It's funny. It's like it just changes everything. Um, They're breaking the law by reading the Bible. They're breaking the law by telling people the message of grace. They're breaking the law by saying you can be set free. There are places where this is really, really clear cut. You are a citizen first of God's kingdom. Honestly, for us, for the most part, I would say, Being a citizen of God's kingdom is reflected most in my life in not doing everything the law allows. The law here in the U.S. mostly doesn't restrict me, mostly doesn't restrict me from being a Christian, but there's many things that it gives me the freedom to do that I ought not to do. Even in the case of Moses being saved from death as an infant, the law allows what we ought not to do. But there are many cases. The law allows sexual freedoms that we ought not to participate in. The law allows financial freedoms. It allows all kinds of things that we shouldn't because we are first citizens of God's country. The law does not make us righteous, but God has told us here's how to live. We ought to do it not so that we can be righteous, but because, like the author of Hebrews has been saying over and over again, because I set you free from having to earn your righteousness, live like people who are set free to love me and love each other. So as I talk about being a citizen, as I talk about law, don't hear for one second that what I'm saying is do right so that you can be right. The message is you have been made right in Christ. And then we need to live like it. We need to look like it. That's what the author of Hebrews has been saying. Now, finally, we have acting out of past promises in confirmation of those. We have acting in our present citizenship. And we also have acting for the future kingdom. So look with me now at verses 24 through 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. In this case, 
we actually really have a good way of fitting into the life of Moses. So if you remember, after the story that we heard about Moses' parents protecting him, they laid him in a basket. They kind of, they, they, I mean, it's pretty clear that they saw where Pharaoh's daughter would regularly bathe. They put him in a basket. He's a beautiful little kid. I, I guess that's possible. They mostly look wrinkly and red, but they're beautiful when they're yours, Right? But this was a kid, and they cry, and they wake you up, but we love them to get older. And we push it out into the river. And Pharaoh's daughter, Pharaoh's daughter sees this baby and says, oh, this must be one of the Hebrew babies. But she takes it in, even though the Hebrews were the slave people. I mean, racism was like full on, not only legal, it was expected. It would be bizarre. This was wrong for her to do. But she grabbed the baby that was the wrong kind of baby, the not really a human, the not at that level, and took it into her household. And we hear, and there's biblical commentators that are pretty sure that this language of being Pharaoh's daughter, the indication was Moses actually was in the line where he could potentially become Pharaoh. At the very least, I mean, the biblical commentator Walt Disney says he was like friends with the future Pharaoh, like grew up together as brothers. But they did a lot of research on that. He was in a powerful position. He was treated as the sister, or excuse me, the, the, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He was powerful. He had it all. He was rich. He had in front of him, it says clearly, all the sins you want, all the pleasures of this world, wealth and coming power, already power. He was set free. He was rescued from being one of those slave people. And he was given everything. And boy, I'll tell you, as we look at our lives here in South Florida, that's actually a lot like what most of us experience. I grew up down here. I think I've shared. I was born in Miami. We got moved around a little bit, ended up in Boca. My mom said, let's not move anymore. Boca has permanently scarred me. I can't make it go away. It's broken me. Inside of my head, no matter how much I know my real hope is in heaven, I think it's a lot right here. Houses that look like this, cars that look like, I don't care that much about cars, but cars that are at least nice and don't, they're not embarrassing. I mean, boats that look like this, money, prestige, power, making sure that you've got the right people around you. South Florida offers us a lot of that. In fact, most of the rest of the world would consider all of us to be extravagantly wealthy. And I can almost guarantee that you and I in this room, almost every one of us feels mostly like we don't have quite enough. And we can picture some people in our minds who if we just had that much, we, we are like Moses. We are in the position of power. We've got the wealth. We've got the attraction. We've got the stuff around us. We can have those pleasures. The pleasure of confidence of material wealth. The pleasure of a nice, safe place to live pleasure of sex outside of marriage, the pleasure of power that's earthly power, the pleasure of esteem of the people around us, the pleasure, look, if you don't look good enough, you can fix that with some money. We can make it, we can get it, we can have it. And what Moses did is in that position, and let me, let me make sure I make something very, very clear. Moses wasn't in sin for having been brought into the household. He wasn't in sin for being wealthy. He wasn't in sin for having power. His position was not sinful. What would have been sinful is 
If he put his hope so much in that that he was unwilling to let it go for the call of God. What you need to examine is not, do I have too much in a way that's sinful? What you need to examine is, am I so committed to my stuff? Am I so committed to Pharaoh's lifestyle that if God called, I would not go? Pharaoh, Pharaoh's household, sure, it had the temptations of sin, like our community has the temptations of sin. But the way Moses reflected living by faith is as it says, for Christ, for the reproach of Christ, he didn't just give it up and go from good to neutral. Moses went all the way from loved to hated within the construct of the world because he knew my hope is there in heaven. And like graduation drags us through high school or retirement drags us through work, in some cases, Heaven ought to drag us where we don't want to go naturally, even if we ought to want to go out of the comforts and power of living in Pharaoh's household and into the service of the Lord. What all of us can say for sure is we need to make sure that we're not so attracted to living in Pharaoh's household that God couldn't call us out of it. Now, some of you may be being called out of it. In my... um, In my work at at Knox, I have a remarkable number of students who are 40, 50, even 60 years old who have quit their first career and started moving into ministry. They've said, this wasn't it, or that was it, but that's not what God's calling to me. And some of them have set aside some very good jobs. Frankly, jobs that would give me all the things that I think would make things right, like boats and houses and cars, as if I don't have enough. But they've set them aside because they feel convinced and convicted that God has called them out of Pharaoh's household. And they have made that turn. They've made that change. They've made that commitment. And we can't be so owned by the trappings of Pharaoh's household that we're unwilling to be called out of it. And if you have it, if you're here, look, all of us are beyond wealthy. I'm sure of it that you're here. We are beyond wealthy by the accord of most people in history. And I don't say that to make anybody feel guilty, which is what it usually feels like it's aimed for. It's so that we'll recognize it, that when we're not content, it's not because we don't have enough. It's because that's our spirit of always wanting more and it can't be filled. What we want is heaven. And when we try to make it full with earthly things, it will always fail. I said it'll sound like Nick and I had coordinated a little bit. I don't want to talk about the election much at all. I actually don't want to talk about it at all, (laughs) to be honest. Because it's so, because you're all, the world around us has programmed all of us to have these things that have to be said or else I don't want to listen to anything else and everything you've said is wrong. In fact, a lot of you, there's probably a lot more certainty in this room about what has to happen for things to be good on Tuesday than there is agreement about what that thing is. And a lot of what's happening, if you read articles, and these are inside the church and outside the church articles, a lot of it is built off of fear. Fear and getting you scared and getting you scared and keeping you scared. And actually, the way stuff works online, if you look at stuff that scares you, it, it, it'll feed you more stuff that scares you. And you can get into this cycle of fear and fear and fear and fear. And fear leads to certainty that goes beyond reason. 
But here's what, here's what these messages do say to us. The first one is, speaking out of God's promises, see, it's not just that Jacob and Joseph and Isaac could speak blessings to their people. God's given us promises too. One of the big promises that we can go stand on is he said, I am working all things together for good for my people. And so I say that not as Tim Sansbury. I say that as the person who's, for the moment, got the microphone. God has said it's going to be okay. It's going to be good. I can pronounce to you it's going to be okay. Now, which way is it going to be okay? I don't know which way it's going to be okay. And I don't know that it's going to be fun on its way to okay. And I don't know that we're going to like it on its way to okay. Because lots of God's people have suffered in lots of great ways where it being okay hasn't felt all that great. And you know that because you've gone through that in your individual lives. And if we go through that together, it will still be okay. Because God is working all things out together for good. What does it mean to be a citizen right now? Well, I actually think Nick did a fantastic job with that, of saying it means we need to live as Christians in the way we vote. And one part of that is not voting out of fear. We shouldn't be scared. We shouldn't be terrified because God has promised it'll be okay. But we shouldn't walk away from it either. He's put this race. If you're here in this place, then live as a Christian in this place. And I'll tell you, you can go out there and there are really thoughtful people who are thinking this through in very different ways. People I respect, people I know, people I know and respect. I'm doing it in a different way than a lot of people. I mean, like, it's just, it's not easy. If you think it's easy, that's scary. And it probably comes back to fear. But then here's the part. So I don't know in the middle. And so I don't get to say like I did before, God promised it'll be okay. Because I can't say, and I would, because it's the job from the pulpit to say, here's God's word. You've got to know it, even if I don't want to do it. But I don't know exactly what it looks like right now to be a citizen of God's kingdom and how that plays out in this complicated, divided world where 35% of citizens in the U.S. think a civil war is likely in the next five years. That's staggering to me. But we can get to the next part. It might not be great. It might be bad. In fact, my guess is a lot of you are going to be disappointed on Tuesday, no matter which, because I think we're divided. I don't think there's agreement in this room. I don't think there's agreement in the broader room on what good is. So I can guarantee you people in this church will be on, disappointed on Tuesday. Because I don't think there's agreement in this church any more than there's agreement in the church more broadly or society more broadly. But just like we don't need to be afraid, we can still have hope. Because your home isn't here. It's here for now. But this is not where your rewards lie. This is not where your hope lies. This is not where, this is not where your comfort lies. Look, we're children of Pharaoh's household. And that can be really deceptive in ways that make us terrified to have those things taken away. The Bible doesn't promise this life won't be miserable. The Bible promises the next life will be beautiful. If you're here, you don't know Christ, he doesn't promise you that everything will be great from here on out. And it won't take you long in this room 
after COVID when we can get to know each other, to find out it also doesn't mean that he'll make you into a delightful person immediately who lacks sin. Give me time. I'll prove it wrong if no one else does. He does promise you this. There's no law that will set you free. There's no way to live that will make you right. There's no good enough to be good enough. There's no book you can read that will fix it. He says, you're broken. You're broken. And by all earthly ways, you're hopelessly broken. And if you're scared, be scared, because if your hope is in this world, it's hopeless. But he said, I came from heaven. I lived, I did what you could never do, and I died on the cross. And he's calling you into his kingdom. He's saying, put your faith in me. I didn't just die, but I was resurrected. He's reigning right now. He's bringing us home. And just by calling on him and saying, Lord, set me free. I keep failing. Set me free. Forgive my sins. Make me one of yours. And he promises, again, those past promises, I proclaim not Tim Sansbury's word, but the Bible's word. He promises you he'll do it. And if you've done that and you're in one of those time periods of being destroyed by doubt, hear it again. If you set your faith in him and you're in his kingdom, he promises, he has done it. What we do from these pulpits is only good when it's bringing out God's promises and declaring them. Like Isaac speaking promises over his children, we can speak promises over each other here saying God has promised. He'll set you free, and he'll carry you home. Now put your hope in that future and live to that, because I promise you, I promise you, your hope is not here. Let's pray. Father, help us to read your word to each other. Help us to read your word to ourselves. Lord, help us to be willing to declare your promises into our own lives and our uncertainties. Lord, when we are doing well and excited about how great we are, bring us down by reminding us of our sin. Lord, when we are scared and low, when we're devastated by our sin or fear of the world around us, bring us up by reminding us of your grace and your promise that you're working good in all things. Lord, help us to live as your people right here, right now in this world, citizens of your kingdom, citizens of your kingdom in whatever kingdom you've called us to. And Lord, help us every day to remember the promise that our hope is in the future and to live for that future, setting aside our place in Pharaoh's household. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio recording produced by Truthpoint Church. We encourage you to distribute this to as many people as you'd like but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For more information about our ministry or to subscribe to our podcast, please visit our website at www.truthpoint.org.